1: Okay, motherfucker what are you looking at sir I'm looking at you miss run that baby I'm not the Zodiac and if I was I certainly wouldn't tell you watch out
0: Fight fire with fire. A Talking Heads lyric, yes, but also the tagline for the Dragon Apocalypse blockbuster, Reign of Fire. My name is Maria Lewis. I'm a best-selling author, filmmaker, pop culture etymologist, and I'd like for you to don your leather, load the crossbow, and prep that 17-second lifespan on Freefall as we revisit one of the most fascinating modern blockbusters some 21 years after its debut. Reign of Fire crashed and ironically burned at the box office in the summer of 2002. Audiences decided it didn't deliver on all it promised on the poster, which depicted a dystopian London besieged by dragons as they set fire to the Big Ben. It debuted in third place on its opening weekend behind Men in Black 2 and Road to Perdition*. By the end of its theatrical run, it barely scraped back its $60 million budget internationally with a global haul of $82 million, which is an interesting figure when you consider its stars. Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale and Gerard Butler, all who were on their way to A-list status. For director Rob Bowman, that cast was lightning in a bottle.
2: I I take no credit for anybody's success, but considering that I don't think you can afford to put those three guys in the same movie right now.
0: It has taken two decades and a surprise legacy thanks to home entertainment and cable reruns. But now viewers are right there with them.
1: A creature has been awakened that has lain dormant for millions of years.
0: One regards Reign of Fire with awe," wrote Roger Ebert back when the film was first released. "Incredulity is our companion, and it's twofold: we cannot believe what happens in the movie, and we cannot believe that this movie was made," he said. It was a one-star review, to be fair, and his pen was usually a lot sharper when it came to one-star reviews from the famous film critic. He seemed to begrudgingly like the movie, even though quote. It makes no sense on its own terms, let alone ours. End quote. He wasn't the only critic to feel this way. With Variety's Joe Layden noting that it had quote an uncommonly satisfying mix of medieval fantasy, high tech military action, and Mad Max style misadventure. End quote. While the New York Times added that it was loads of fun. It has a jamming B picture buzz, said critic Elvis Mitchell. Quote. The kind of swift filmmaking and high spirits that have been missing from movies for a while, end quote. Those reviews and the outlets they came from were not insignificant. They recognised something late Hollywood producer Richard Dick Zanuck also saw. Having won Best Picture for Driving Miss Daisy, an Academy Award win that hasn't aged super well in hindsight, Zanuck was best known for producing classics like The Sound of Music, The Verdict and Jaws he had earned the opportunity to leverage his capital when he saw fit, which he did in the most unexpected ways for Reign of Fire. I
1: remember the, the, the original script was a spec written by these guys who'd never, like, I, I don't think they'd ever written anything before. Yeah. I think they were, like, these Wisconsin guys. And, and part of the thing that I and I remember reading about it when it sold and, and, and sort of thinking, you know, Fuck! Why didn't I think of this? This is great, you know. <laughs> and what I what I think was was great, and it, it sort this sort of had to be written by people who weren't in the film industry mm-hmm. at that point, is because if you told anybody
0: the pitch, you know, it's like, okay, it's a Dragon Apocalypse, uh-huh. and would be like, get the fuck out of here. Seriously, that's one of Rain of Fire's screenwriters, Matthew Greenberg. Then a baby writer, he was considered the guy you got to punch up a script and make it shootable. Which is exactly what he was hired to do in this instance. Yet unlike his last two projects with Dimension, Mimic, and Halloween H2O, both iconic in their own right, he had fought to get on Reign of Fire. Not just as a fan of the early draft, but as someone who had a background in it academically after being a medieval studies major in college. He was brought onto the project to help hone the vision of those two Wisconsin guys, Greg Chabot and Kevin Peterkar. Would never had anything made before Reign of Fire and have never had anything made since, only adding to their mystique. Then in his 60s, Dick Zanuck didn't care about what their previous credits were or weren't. He cared about what was on the page and what he saw was a merging of medieval and military. More importantly, he felt it was something he had never seen before.
1: Big question of, like, it wasn't only dragons it was dragons in modern day in this sort of, you know, f- fucked up setting. And, um, the, uh, you know, in Hollywood, it's very interesting because you're dealing with vast amounts of money. And yeah. Everybody's scared. <laughs> and, you know, no, it's, it's just, it, you know, terror and anxiety and envy are like, <laughs> you know, the, the three major emotions that you pass through. You know, usually within, you know, a minute of each other, every, every, every minute of every day. But, um, you know we knew that um we knew that everybody knew we were taking a chance but you know i'll tell you something you know the the guy who was the producer on it or, or one of the producers um and who was really um the the he was kind of one of my mentors um, mm-hmm. was dick zanuck right mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away um a number of years ago um and dick it was really interesting you know because Dick Zanuck, you know, he was the son of Daryl Zanuck, you know, he was Hollywood royalty. He was one of those guys, you know, and he had, you know, he had done Jaws, you know, yeah. I and mean, he had done, like, lots of great
0: movies, yeah. and... The Reign of Fire what, of the Sea, as Jaws is known. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's exactly it. And where, where Dick was brilliant was that he understood that he stood at
1: the balance uh, between risk mm. and... You know, and and, and safety. And he always knew that. You know, you can always play it safe, and you know, you, you might, you know, you might get lucky and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but he, when he when he saw something that really spoke to him, and this is the thing that was really great. It's like right from the beginning, right from our first pitch, he got it. You know, he understood. You know, where at least I was coming from, and so that. And his son Dean as well, you know, who was, you know, also a producer on it who was extremely, you know, smart and very, very helpful. They they were able to guide it sort of through the initial stages of development.
0: The biggest issue, however, was money. At the time, Rob Bauman was coming off the back of a big hit with the X-Files movie after directing and producing dozens of episodes of the show. It too was high concept genre fare, but on a $66 million budget, Bowman had been able to craft something that was faithful to the feverish fandom and a $189.2 million hit at the box office. It put him in the sights of many a Hollywood exec, including Zanuck. Here's Rob.
2: The first script I read, I would bet would have cost $300 million. Yeah. And that was not going to happen. So how do I distill it down? And by the way, we have a short prep because of that doggone actor strike coming up. Um, so we, you know, we were writing it. Matter of fact, the last day of filming was all the stuff of Matthew in the command vehicle quarterbacking the Archangel sequence. Mm. And the movie had evolved narratively throughout production. We were still writing it. And... On the last day of filming, I remember sitting with Matthew, and he was a great sport about it, that I had to tell him, you know, these things that had happened to the story, um, most of which he was aware of and some that he wasn't, and that Matthew and I wrote that morning on set most of the dialogue or corrected all of the scenes
0: right before we shot him. The initial projected budget of the movie was in part what had seen Rain of Fire bounce around from Spyglass to Fox to Touchstone and Disney, but it was Bauman's distilled version that eventually got the green light, and, says Greenberg, his ability to ground the crazy concept in reality. Uh, there, was a, there was a bit of artwork that the director Rob Bowman mm. showed me early on uh, that blew me away. Uh, it was it was a picture of the the main dragon,
1: and it wasn't just like hey this is a cool dragon. Is that I think Rob's Rob's model for this was like literally in his head it was a dragon, but also he had like a massive like B fifty two bomber that had just gone <laughs> through combat. So it was like up
0: in different places, yeah. and survived. You know, you know,
1: you could see all the. And I thought,
0: well, that's freaking genius. The bare bones of the plot has a young boy witness the death of his mother after the London tunnelling project she's working on digs too deep, unearthing a long slumbering species of bloodthirsty dragons. Fast forward twenty years, and that boy is now a man, Quinn, played by Christian Bale. Who catches us up on everything that has happened since, which is, you know, the end of the world, basically? It was dragons who wiped out the dinosaurs, their ash causing the Ice Age and now the eventual downfall of man, as city after city falls to swarms of millions. He's holed up in what they believe is one of the last strongholds of humanity inside an English castle where he and his best mate, Creedy, played by Gerard Butler, try to keep the next generation alive and hopeful. The pair perform stage versions of Star Wars and The Lion King to keep the kids entertained in what is one of the more genuinely sweet moments in the story. Their uneasy peace is disturbed with the arrival of Americans, naturally, who come in tanks and helicopters and dirt-smeared singlets under the leadership of Matthew McConaughey's dragon slayer, Denton Van Zan, a Hall of Famer for ridiculous cinematic badass names. How did they go from one to a million in less than a year now one will protect
1: them we have to hang on work together and one will lead them
2: there's nothing magical about it they're made of flesh and blood you take out their heart you bring down the beast
0: it's a b-movie blockbuster if such a thing can exist with straight-faced performances from oscar winners like bale and mcconaughey paired with things like archangels soldiers with a 17-second lifespan who yeet themselves out of helicopters and directly at the dragons terrorizing them. Here's Bowman again.
2: Absolutely. Well, I, I will tell you the four things that I felt were the heart of the recipe,
0: which mm. was
2: banks and castles, soldiers and dragons. I hadn't seen that one before. And I know in the, in the earlier drafts, there was a little more digital technology in the weaponry. There was, mm. you know... I think there was laser sighting, and, there, and I know there was R.P. She said, you know, it, the problem with anything that you can use at a distance is it doesn't require much courage mm. from the character. And so I, 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 whatever version I can come up with that's more hand-to-hand, which is impossible, um, you know, no different than tangling with a shark or a, you know, a, a lion or anything, <laughs> it's like, what do you expect the outcome to be? It's going to be dead, dead, dead. Yeah. But in, in the end, you know, um, although Quinn's philosophy was very practical, like, why would you mess with them? You're, you're just going to die. And that, you know, if we're, if we're running out of people, um, why throw another body at it when you already know what the outcome is going to be? Mm. You know, step into the cage at the zoo with a lion. <laughs> what do you think is
0: going to happen? <laughs> Friendships were also formed over it, namely between the core trio of Bale, McConaughey and Butler, who are all just a few years out from their seminal roles. Bale hadn't yet become Batman and Butler was still to scream. This
1: is Sparta!
0: That's not to say they weren't known entities, but Reign of Fire came in between two of McConaughey's biggest rom-com hits. The Wedding Planner and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days and a full decade before the reconnaissance began in earnest. Yet few people were more dedicated to the role, recalls Greenberg.
1: That dude committed. You you know, the director told me stories about how he would get calls from Matthew. This is when, you know, (laughs) we were still in production. He would get calls from Matthew and Matthew would talk to him, not as Matthew
0: McConaughey, but as Van Zandt. Oh my God. Bowman confirmed he definitely got a phone call from McConaughey in character as the dragon slayer. A few, in fact, but it was perhaps less mythologized than people remember, with Bowman saying that McConaughey was a funny guy with a great sense of humor. It
2: started with uh, Matthew basically told me that I wasn't allowed
0: to make the movie
2: without it. Cool. Awesome. tenacious and ferocious in his commitment to playing that role, which I really loved.
0: For his part, it was the primal nature of the character that drew McConaughey to Van Zandt. Here's a clip of him on the press circuit at the time promoting the film.
2: It seemed wild. It seemed something, it was fiction. It was extraordinary. It seemed like it was going to be a lot of fun. It seemed like it was going to be very physical. Be a man of action, go be a badass, take care of business. A man working from necessity, not luxury. A man who doesn't talk about things, but does them. And uh, it was fun.
0: It was also the Academy Award winner's idea to don Pacifica-inspired dragon tattoos, something that meant hours of extra time in the makeup chair each day, but was supposed to be somewhat of a tribute to the famous New Zealand rugby union team, the All Blacks. Butler's casting was the beginning of a true bromance between he and Bowman, with the director affectionately calling him Jerry. Bowman met with Butler just once before he offered him the part after falling in love with him during their first IRL chat at Disney. It was Bale, he says, who was the real journey and a hard sell for the studio, who felt that he didn't bring as much box office pull. In fact, it was very nearly a showdown between two of the most iconic muscle men of the 80s, Arnie and Sly. The producer had asked me if I would consider, you
2: know, a Stallone or Schwarzenegger
0: Mm.
2: but I said the problem with that is I know who's going to be alive at the end of the movie Mm. and I know what's going to happen to the dragon and I sort of submarine the dragon's menace and threat from the beginning because I have that you know sort of impenetrable um, perpetually victorious actor character if it's Arnold or Sly. And, you know, and those guys have such a huge screen presence. Um, And I'm asking the audience to say, okay, there's fake dragon in this movie as the villain. I couldn't ask them to do anything else.
0: Bale was his pick for leading man, given he was a very strong, soulful person who didn't bring much baggage, says Bowman. And the genius of that choice shines in the smaller moments. Those when he interacts with the children... And leads them in reciting their daily prayer, if you will.
2: What do we do when we wake? Keep, keep what do we do? What do we? What do we
1: do when
0: we sleep?
1: Keep one eye.
0: While a no-brainer now, at the time it wasn't just the studio that Bowman had to convince about bail; it was Bale himself.
2: So I flew to I flew to Berlin, sort of like uh, I have to go to Berlin today. You know, <laughs> and I stepped over to Berlin and I met him in the restaurant um, in the Four Seasons in Berlin, and he and what I remember, and this may not be pinpoint Act, what I remember is he. Looked to be very pleasant when I met him. And he he held the script up with one hand and said something to the effect of what are we going to do? And I said, Christian, I'm reading the same script you're reading and I'm going to fix it and I know what it is. And he goes, okay, tell me what it is. So I told him what I wanted to do with it. And that to me was really a story about the, the strength of the human spirit. You know, in the meeting in Berlin, you know, just kind of made me promise. And Christian, when he looks at you and he means it, that's a hard look.
0: His cell worked, along with the promise to ground his dragons with as much ultra-realism as possible, a key element that fans still love and dissect to this day, that medieval meets military aesthetic. Here's Bale in an interview at the time. Uh, There was just really great potential. It could have gone hideously wrong. Like any movie could, but I always felt that this one could go even more hideously wrong than most when you're dealing with, you know, dragons. But after speaking with Rob, he just really nailed how it would work. It was only after speaking with Rob that Bale thought he could do it. Once he was on board, so too was Butler and McConaughey, and after securing a tax break in Ireland, the production headed there for 90 days of principal photography. In Greenberg's words, there was nothing easy or normal about the shoot. And not just because the fact that the blackened wasteland he had described in his script was now going to be physically created in one of the luscious places on Earth. You know, there were
1: a number of, um, you know, production challenges. I mean, one of the th- <laughs> one of the things that was, um, you know, just, just happens, you know, it, it's like
0: in my script, one of the things that I specified was... Is that there's almost no plant life like mm-hmm. everything's just
1: been burned
0: mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's just sort of this just blackened landscape right and so originally when we were looking at places to shoot we were looking at places like
1: iceland yeah or you know spain or even morocco and stuff and and then i get the call saying okay well we're, we're doing it in ireland and i'm like ireland and i'm like you know
0: Events of the film are set in a dystopian future that takes place in the year of 2020. Of course, in our version of 2020, we became much more familiar with the idea of the end of the world than the filmmakers could ever have guessed at the time. But perhaps interestingly, Reign of Fire has never been more popular than it is right now. In part, that's thanks to Game of Thrones. The technology used to create the dragons in the series naturally drew a visual comparison point to Reign of Fire, which pioneered how to make giant flying reptiles look believable rather than, well, you know, Dragonheart. Bowman wanted his beasties as natural, geographic, authentic as possible.
2: Nobody's made a a truly authentic, realistic, almost ultra-realistic dragon or set it in an environment that seemed real. Mm. And so, and, th- and then I probably made it, you know, 10 or 12 years too early, because, <laughs> you know, everybody started, as, as my artists say, everybody started ripping off our dragons. So, <laughs> yeah, well, at least that means so relevant.
0: The film spent a year in post-production once the island shoot wrapped, and given what Greenberg considers a small budget, that's $60 million figure down from a projected $300 million, he calls it a technical achievement.
1: If we made this movie today, we could have done everything because
0: now we have the technology. Yeah. Back then, you know, we had we had stuff, but we don't. We didn't have nearly the access that we do now. You know, so you know it was, but you know it got made. Yeah, it's not a fucking,
1: it's not 120 pages. You know, There's a
0: doorstop somewhere. So when Reign of Fire did debut in cinemas with a whimper before hitting home entertainment. It wasn't as poorly received as you might think a movie about Bale, Butler and McConaughey fighting dragons might be. The box office had underwhelmed, sure, but critics seemed to appreciate the endeavour. The metamorphosis from flop to beloved cult film was almost instantaneous, with the filmmakers noticing a positive reaction on home entertainment that wasn't there during the theatrical run, according to Greenberg. It
1: was about a year after- out mm. and i was at this barbecue store right barbecues galore right <laughs> yeah and, and i'm buying like you know barbecue stuff and the salesman asked me you know it's like what do you do i said oh, i'm a screenwriter oh have you written anything i know it's like well just that movie came out rain of fire <gasps> you wrote rain of fire oh my god man and he pulls me aside and he brings me over to like his partner it's like dude this guy wrote rain of fire and his partner like looks at me and i can tell within, he fucking hated that movie <laughs> he hated me right you know for writing it for wasting his <sighs> two hours so um uh, and, and and you know I and mean, look that's when you when, when you work on a project in a weird way you kind of want that you know you, you want like passionate response mm-hmm. whether it's positive or negative Yeah.
0: Bauman too, who went on to direct Electra afterwards and find continued success in television with Castle and The Rookie, Rain of Fire is a subject that comes up often, more often than he ever expected.
2: Uh, you know, it, uh, I made the best movie I could make, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I sort of, as they say in sports, I left it all in the field, um, and so it, it's not like, well... I read if somebody didn't like it or they would have an issue with this or that. Well, look, we rushed the entertainment into business, but it, it's supposed to be an art also. Yeah. And, uh, my art, it,
0: I'm not saying it's the Mona Lisa. There was a planned Reign of Fire sequel, according to internet forums at the time, but it was something that neither Bauman or Greenberg heard anything about. A so-so video game adaptation and rumoured television series that never eventuated saw the end of A Dragon Multiverse, per se. Yet fans have kept it very much alive, not just through social media where seemingly obscure films suddenly have a burgeoning online fandom, but through subreddits that theorise possible prequels and custom-scale replicas of Van Zandt that still sell for hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars. That may seem surprising to some, but after over 30 years in the business, it's not a shock to Greenberg. You know, I've worked on a lot of stuff over the years and, and
1: really you know you never know you, you never know you mm. never know what's gonna happen so but of all of all the movies that I have worked on that has been the one that like uh, you know keeps people keep talking about you know it's yeah. like they, they, they say oh yeah you know and I think because you know going back to what our discussion about you know the medieval aspects of it and everything like that. I think that, you know, um, what the director was able to do, what the actors were able to do, and everything like that, they they, 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 they did catch sort of a mythic sense that, you know, can last through time. You know, and, 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 I, and I don't mean to sound grandiose, but, you know, some of these
0: movies, I think the reasons that movies are really any work of art you know, last is because it you know, it's like it, it human beings in one sense are all tuning forks and you know, occasionally <laughs> something
1: comes along pings and it
0: makes you ring, you know, even mm-hmm. even years later. I've been Maria Lewis, your writer, researcher and presenter for this very special one off episode, which is produced by Blake Howard of One Heat Minute Productions. If you like the kind of nonsense I spit, my latest novel for Marvel, Locking Bird Strike Out, is available everywhere good books are. In September, my debut slasher, The Graveyard Shift, drops and follows the host of a horror-themed radio show that gets reluctantly drawn into a series of brutal slayings. And in November, my 11th book, Assassin's Creed Mirage, Daughter of No One, will be hitting shelves and is currently available for pre-order right now. Might I also recommend right here on this very network, Josie and the Podcats, a limited audio documentary, all about the 2001 cult film Josie and gonna the Pussycat.
2: to see it